0: Mm-hmm. So why says we fight him anyway? And Tommy's the leader, so we should go down and make up the fight with Tommy. Who Says Tommy's the leader. Who says we all says? Now oh, you Mr. Matt, I'll push you right in the river. Yeah, yeah don't, don't yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin.
1: I'm David Daw.
0: And this week. We are continuing 1937, yes? Yes, yes, correct. <laughs> uh, with Dead End, which I keep wanting to call Dead End Kids.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's not actually called that. That's just the kids in the movie. Uh, and also the story of Humphrey Bogart. Well... It's a, it's really a, an ensemble piece, this movie.
1: Yeah, and like Humphrey Bogart is third lead? Fifth lead? It's very, it's, I mean, yeah. it's
0: an ensemble movie, really. Uh, yeah. Though I finally understand now, like I've read old film history things or like little asides or whatever about Humphrey Bogart where they talked about him coming off as a thug or scary or whatever. And like everything that I'd ever seen him in, Well, I've only ever seen him in two movies before this, which were Casablanca and uh, the one that he's in with Lauren Bacall that they met on the set of whatever it's called. I have jet lag. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. My brain is only on like 30% capacity. But, you know, he's like not he's not like rough in those movies or scary. And in this, he's pretty scary. Uh,
1: Yeah. I I mean, I. Honestly, I spent a lot of time just thinking about how young he looks in this movie.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure at first. I was like, "Is that is that Humphrey Bogart?" Okay, yeah, it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. For sure. But yes, he does a, like, surprisingly good job of playing this gangster heavy.
0: Yeah, because I always think of him as being, like, kind of sad and, like, feeling a lot of feelings, which he actually does that in this movie, too, but in a way that's also, like, really sinister. But I guess we should talk about the plot of this movie.
1: So much happens in this movie, and yet so little in a way that's so theater. This movie is kind of like every oh, hello joke about what the theater is like in a lot of ways. (laughs) It's set in the slums of New York in sort of like a tenement row right near the East River, right near the Queensboro Bridge, actually. And uh, you follow a whole bunch of characters, mostly all these sort of like kids that they call the dead end kids. I know I should never tell Susan to watch The Wire, but their whole thing is basically the fourth season of The Wire.
0: You don't have to tell me to watch The Wire. That's the whole thing. It's like, I already know. Right. (laughs) Just like everyone who hasn't seen The Wire, we already know we should watch The Wire. You don't need to tell us.
1: Yeah, that's fair. The sort of adults we're mostly following are uh, a guy named Dave Connell, who was, like, trained as an architect and is now just, like, trying to get work just painting because it's the, because the depression's on. He is childhood friends with a woman named uh, Drina, who I, al- like, could not wrap my head around that being her name for, like, half the movie. I was like, I must be hearing this wrong.
0: And what is that even short for? Because I kept being, every time anyone said her name, I'd be like adrenal gland
1: yeah I, I I, was like I guess it's Audrina but then why not do Audrey or like I don't mm. I've
0: never heard that name before yeah
1: Uh. anyway other than her name Drina is rad as hell
0: oh my god I'm in love with her <laughs>
1: Because she is striking for better pay and does all of these, like, very well-considered class-based statements about why everything in the fucking movie is happening. And she is- She
0: hates cops. She hates
1: cops. Uh, and- She is
0: gorgeous.
1: That does help.
0: I mean, like, sometimes she would be on the screen and I would just want to cry because she was so beautiful. <laughs> um, um, Or maybe I was just really tired. Uh, d- d-
1: both are possible. <laughs> yeah. She is the older sister of the sort of leader of the boys gang of the dead end kids. And also is awesome when she like goes and just like beats the shit out of half of them. Yeah. Uh, and is like looking out for her kid brother and like their parents are gone. And I'm sorry that I'm just like dismissing all this tragic shit. It's just there's a lot of tragic shit in this movie. And we got to get to like the other four plot lines because we haven't even talked about Humphrey Bogart yet. Who's a gangster named Hugh Martin who's come back, who, like, used to live in this tenement row when they were all kids. He and Dave and Drina were all kids together. Dave is also having an affair with, like, the mistress of one of the rich people. But honestly, that's the, like, most boring nothing plot in the movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Something we should point out is that even though this is a tenement row, that uh, it's been gentrified, that there's, like, a really posh apartment building that is literally, like, on the same block.
1: And it's in such a weird position, too. It's the furthest out from the street. I get that it's for the view, Mm -hmm. because constantly everyone in this apartment building has to have their, like, servants guard them as they walk to the street.
0: Well, they talk about at the beginning of the movie, when some old guy is coming out, that there's something wrong with the other entrance. I don't remember what it was, but it's like the elevator is broken or, like... They're doing construction or something.
1: Oh, okay. I missed that. Because
0: he was like, oh, I, I hate going out this side because there are dirty children out here or whatever it is.
1: Th- that makes a lot more sense that, like, the north-facing side of the street is, like, that's a good neighborhood or whatever or, like, exits directly onto some real street or something. But it's also extremely theater that, like, the front entrance is open and so the classes must mingle. <laughs>
0: Right, exactly.
1: But Humphrey Bogart's plot is that he's, like, coming back to his childhood neighborhood. The cops all think he's out west. Just nebulously, all anybody says is, aren't you supposed to be out west somewhere?
0: I think at one point somebody says, like, aren't you in Colorado? And then I think the next time that somebody talks to him, it's, like, a different western state.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: sort of every time anyone talks to him, it's like, why aren't you in New Mexico? (laughs) And he's coming back to see his mom.
1: Yes, and his, uh... X, his like childhood sweetheart.
0: Yes, Francie.
1: Both of those scenes are very good, but also very short. Yes. He goes and sees his mom and his mom doesn't just do like a you're no son of mind, just like straight up to his face, calls him a murderer and tells him to go away.
0: Yeah, that scene was fucking weird, which we will talk about Later, it was like a very, very difficult to watch scene for a number of reasons, not all of which are because it was just good. I,
1: yes, I felt that way definitely about the scene with Francie with the girlfriend which is a weird scene because she is a prostitute who is dying of syphilis, and the movie can't say any of that. Nope. (laughs) And so uh, she has to, like, show the barest scar. It's, like, such a small scar on her face. I don't think, if I hadn't read the Wikipedia plot summary, I would know why she was showing him her face.
0: Oh, I... Didn't realize that that because she was like, you know, back up and look at me. Yeah. And I thought it was just like, oh, because, you know, maybe she like looks sick compared to how she, you know, like maybe she's lost a lot of weight or something. She kept coughing. And I was like, what? What? Okay. Like, does she have the sexually transmitted tuberculosis?
1: Yeah. There's a very, very small scar under her right eye. She still looks great.
0: I totally did not see that but okay i i believe you i'm just like it was that subtle
1: yeah for sure
0: she says look at me and then he's like well why didn't you get a job and she says they don't grow on trees which i thought was really like jesus the depression was so bad that it's not even money doesn't grow on trees literally jobs don't grow on trees yeah yeah and then he says, well, why didn't you starve? And I was like, you're a fucking asshole.
1: <laughs> well, in her de- in the movie's defense, her immediate response is, why didn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true.
1: <laughs> he gives her some cash, but like waves her away and-, and is disgusted by her. He then hatches a plan to kidnap this movie's little Lord Fauntleroy that falls apart extremely quickly. <laughs> because it's an extremely bad plan, and ends up getting shot by
0: Dave. Not shot, he stabs him.
1: No, he Dave gets stabbed by Humphrey Bogart when they're up on the- Oh
0: yeah, that's what yeah. I meant. Yeah, sorry. But
1: that is honestly so- I, I was kind of skipping over that part. Dave overhears them, and then being a good dude, loudly announces to a mobster that he's going to go tell the cops about him. Gets stabbed in the stomach and thrown in the river.
0: Which he gets stabbed in the stomach, and it seems to have literally no effect on him whatsoever.
1: I do gotta say, it's a fairly small knife, and I did think to myself, guys aren't gonna stick around and, like, check? I get that you stabbed the dude.
0: Yeah, that's true. But, like, yeah.
1: it's definitely not they, like, cut off his head and are like well he's definitely done for now they just like gave him a pretty bad chest wound and like kicked him <laughs> into the river and we're like i'm sure that does it
0: the river that by the way the kids swim in all the time it's not like there's a fast current here or anything
1: yeah dave crawls out of the river Finds him up on the rooftops. I was very unclear about why almost anything was happening in that part. It moves very quickly compared to the rest of the film. There's like a shootout up on the rooftops and he ends up killing Humphrey Bogart's character um, and gets a shit ton of money, like reward money for getting this gangster. But then very quickly loses it all because of the kid plot line where the dead end kids... Decide, in their infinite lack of wisdom, to beat up and steal from the rich kid on the block. Philip. Get almost immediately caught by the rich kid's dad, stab him in the arm.
0: Not that bad. Basically, the rich kid's dad has Tommy's arm, like, twisted behind him, and Tommy, trying to get out of this, like, arm twist chokehold the dad has on him, stabs him in the arm that is choking him and it's like a it's like a fucking pinprick yeah
1: i I mean it's certainly not as bad as the stab dave got but honestly all the stabs in this movie are very like i guess i've just watched too many action movies because they're all like is that a knife
0: yeah i actually have fingernail files that are bigger than the knife in this movie (laughs) yeah anyway
1: because he stabbed a rich dude Drina's little brothers the cops are looking for him And then at the very, very end of the movie, he decides to turn himself in rather than running away after Dave, the one good man in the entire fucking universe, explains (laughs) that he's on the road to becoming Humphrey Bogart's character. By this time, he's cast off the rich mistress he's in love with, because even though he could have her now that he's rich from the reward money, he's... Realized what he really wants is Drina. I don't understand why he's realized that, but it is the completely correct decision.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and volunteers to spend that reward money getting the little brother a good defense so that he doesn't spend too long in jail. And then we have the incredibly stagey, theatrical ending where one of the other dead end kids goes, "Hey." you know that character I just referenced a minute and a half ago who we've never seen and I've never talked about before? Well, the thing he used to do is sing a song. <laughs> and then all of the dead-end kids start meandering off singing this song they very hastily set up as a, like, emotional ending. And then we have a reverse of the incredibly good establishing shot of this movie going back up to the New York l- skyline. <laughs> End of film.
0: So what did you think of this movie, David?
1: Uh, I'm kind of... Uh, I don't really know in a weird way. I, I did not particularly enjoy watching it, but I d- enjoyed pieces of it. I certainly didn't hate it. I have no sort of outstanding anger at it, though I think I would have like had a much harder time explaining the plot, it, even harder than I just did, had I not been looking at the Wikipedia page right now, because... There's a lot of just like, why is this scene here? Why did this scene happen? Scenes in this movie. Mm
0: -hmm. So I, I really liked this movie and I will tell you why. I fell asleep four times watching this movie because I tried to watch it on the plane coming back from Prague and I'd had like four hours of sleep the night before And because of time differences, like, by the time that I started to watch it, I had already watched Isle of Dogs, both Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them movies, and then was like, well, time to tuck into my Screen Test of Time movie. And, like, I'd been up for 24 hours at that point and passed out. Then I got home, and, like, the very first day I tried to watch it, and again, fell asleep. (laughs) And then yesterday... Actually, I tried twice on the first day. And then yesterday, I fell asleep 24 minutes from the end and then watched the rest of it this morning. The movie moves pretty slowly, and all of the different characters and groups of characters don't seem to have any connection until about 60% of the way through the movie, when you suddenly, like, see how all of these threads have now woven together. Yeah. Which... To me is totally brilliant, but I would not have seen that had I watched it all the way through in one sitting instead of, like, restarting it ten times. Because the first, like, 36 minutes of this 90-minute movie, I was like, what the fuck do all of these people even have to do with each other?
1: Honestly, that's kind of my objection to the film. Like, I understand that, like, yes, they do start to interweave as you go through, but, like... It's honestly like the thing that is inelegantly done is not the weaving together. Cause you're right. That part really works. It's the establishing of everybody's individual plot line. There's just so much expositionary, like I'm this guy and I'm friends with this guy. Now I know that you're the new kid on the block. My dad does this thing stuff for the first 30, 40 minutes of the movie that I was just like god fucking get to anybody doing anything (laughs) and then when they did the movie really picks up but because they're doing this very theater-y you are there you can see the like different characters wandering onto stage and off stage and now we we're gonna care about these people for four minutes in a way that was just like all right okay
0: well, the kids gang really functions in a weird way as kind of a Greek chorus that you'll have like something happens with Dave where he goes and talks to Kay and and it's like, oh, we, we all are so tortured about the fact that, you know, you're because she's basically like a kept woman. Like, oh, we're tortured about the fact that you're a kept woman with a man that you don't love, but you've been poor and it was awful. So, you know, I don't begrudge you that or whatever. And then it's like. Back to the kids swimming in the swimming hole. And it's like the movie is very smartly constructed, but not necessarily compellingly so until we're like pretty far into it.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think the thing that kind of exhausts me about this movie... It is an extremely structurally well-composed movie, but, like, it does not give a shit about doing that with a light touch. No. Sometimes it really works, and sometimes just, like, the Greek chorus kids are like, Look at those kid like, guys up there in their literal ivy tower. It's so bright and shiny up there, I bet they don't even know what it's like to be one of us. And it's like, yeah... For sure. They don't. I get it. I have, I've, I've been watching the movie you're in. They for sure do not get it.
0: Right. Right. There's a thing in particular, actually, toward the end where Philip's dad, the rich kid's dad, says something to Drina about like, there are other boys like Philip and they need to be protected too. And I was like, oh man, fuck you, dude. But that in and of itself drives that whole point home. So we didn't need to have all of that other shit happening the whole time? Yeah. (laughs) Like all of the very heavy handed like, gee whiz, our lives sure are tough and the rich people just don't know about it. And it's like his dad just saying that my son who has everything and lives in, like you said, a literal ivory tower and has like a governess at the age of 14 Yeah, children should be protected. The kid's protected. Yeah. We don't need to fight for that.
1: (laughs) And like, very explicitly, he's like, and other kids like him. And it's like, oh, we're really just making it explicit that this is a class warfare thing. You are doing this on behalf of all rich little kids. And you actually think like, that you are so willing to blow off all kids not like your son.
0: Right, right. Like, oh, well, they should all just be in reform school. Yeah. And the stuff I think with Drina actually is a much more effective use of the class warfare stuff where she's talking about going to strike and there's the point where she's like stuffing her shoes with paper and she says the paper helps spare her shoes but not her feet and she's talking to Dave and Dave is obviously distracted because Kay is like standing at the balcony of the ivory tower building and and that's like, oh, okay, so we're getting this, but we're also getting it within the context of this relationship that we're establishing, or actually two relationships that we're establishing, the one between Trina and Dave and the one between Dave and Kay. Yes. Or like when the cop comes and is like, you know, where is this boy who stabbed the guy? And she she won't help him. And he says, you know, you guys don't ever trust any cops. You're just ready to kill us or whatever. And she lifts up her hair and shows a bruise on her head. And it's like, yeah, a cop gave me this because I was striking.
1: Yeah. And I think like so much of that is less about the script being better and more about Sylvia Sidney just being really, really good. The actress who plays Drina. I think so much of whether or not something reads as real and lived in the movie kind of lives and dies on that. Yeah. Because if it starts to feel constructed, which I would say it it does fairly regularly with the kids, at least, then it starts to feel a little bit like a morality play in a way that I think kind of cheapens it. I think what makes this great is that like the set for this is huge. There is not a realism to it, but a like, oh, you are there sense to it. When that starts to break down, I think the movie gets a little bit worse. And when it starts to feel like you're watching a stage play and not like in this tenement row.
0: That feeling of realism, for me, it was actually most effective during the rooftop and then warehouse, question mark, chase scene. Because they did some really incredible camera work in that scene, which I think is why it feels like it moves so fast and you don't know what's going on because it's so dark. And then there will be like lines of light coming in through broken slats or whatever. Like it feels disorienting and you can't see like where baby face Martin is or where Dave is or whatever. And I think that that was I think that was on purpose. Yeah. But then there are the times where it does break down and feel like a stage set. And a lot of those times are actually with the kids where they're like swimming in the river. This is their little water hole. And I had the thought of when they did this on Broadway and then moved it to the movie. They were like, oh, we can have a real river. Yeah. And then just exploited the shit out of it.
1: Oh, for sure. They are so impressed with themselves that there is like a big body of water at the (laughs) front of this set. They should be. The set is really great. And again, that opening establishing shot from the like model work version of the New York skyline into this building to like hide the switch over to the set to just pulling back out to how huge the set is. Right. Is great. The thing that's weird is then the cinematography, like, really, I thought we were kind of back to that, like, early 30s thing where you have this, like, great establishing shot, and then it's like a fucking I Love Lucy episode after that in terms of camera work.
0: And and it is in some parts.
1: But then you're right. During the sort of chase-killing Humphrey Bogart sequence, it really picks up. When the kids attack the rich kid, it really picks up. There are moments where the movie decides to do some flashy camera work and some flashy cinematography. And then it'll kind of settle into these very boring static shots back on the street for like 20 minutes that are strange.
0: Two of the scenes, actually, that for me had really incredible and I think very different camera work than anything that we have seen so far in this project, other than the chase scene, were the two scenes with Babyface Martin, played by Humphrey Bogart, uh, the one with his mom and the one with Francie, his childhood sweetheart. I want to talk about that scene with his mom.
1: That's sort of what I mean about like it feeling real is going into that scene. You know what that scene's going to be because you know already what movie you're in. Right. (laughs) Oh, she's going to tell him he sucks. And like, this will not go well for him. Dave, the moral authority who knows everything, has literally told him it will not go well for him. (laughs) So it won't. Right. But like the degree to which she hates him. And the specificity of it and the way it is shot and performed is like, oh, oh shit.
0: Marjorie Maine made me feel, made me feel bad. And like, I have a great relationship with my mom. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, this is, because it is not, it is not the like, you are no son of mine. Get out of my home. She is so distressed and so clearly terrified of him, and like also probably some kind of sick or unwell that is not really ever specified. But her voice is this like really tremulous monotone where it's like she's getting it out and is terrified of saying the things that she's saying, but she has to get them out.
1: Yeah, I mean, she very clearly genuinely had kind of blocked out she had a kid in this way where she had like... She was never going to see him again, Mm -hmm. never going to have to deal with this thing, and not in a way where she had, like, really literally forgotten she had a son, but in a way where she had just, like, decided to never think about it. She literally screams in terror when she recognizes him.
0: You know, I I felt differently about it. I felt like she had rehearsed the things that she was going to say so many times in her head, but had never thought she would actually have the chance to say them. And that was the only reason that she got them out through that level of fear was that she was like, you're here and I'm going to do it, even though I'm terrified. <laughs> but yeah, I think she probably rehearsed all of those thinking she would never see him to say them.
1: Yeah, I interesting. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And like that, that, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think I read her performance as being very spur of the moment. But I think like, yeah, I, I don't really have any evidence to say that it builds so methodically that like yeah I think you're right the more I think about it. Clearly her anger with him is very longstanding because he's been a shit since he was a little
0: kid He's like in the papers like he's that level of famous gangster
1: yeah we should talk about the cinematography because it's such a darkly shot scene in a movie where like honestly I think they overlight a lot of shit mm-hmm. like outside the outside that's clearly inside of the set is like very, very, very bright when it's daytime Mm -hmm. in a way that feels very like 1950s television. Yeah, And so I kind of thought like, oh, we're just doing this thing. We're just doing that. We've just like hung up fucking lights everywhere to make sure everything's lit from every angle so that there's no way we can shoot this where we fuck it up. And that I thought that was what we were gonna get for the whole movie. But then there are these sequences, like the one with the mom, where they sort of move to a smaller space and care really, really deeply about the lighting. That There's like some real landed on thick biblical stuff around like who is in light and when in that scene.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of like chiaroscuro going on in this movie when it wants to have that, which is interesting because it's always inside when it happens but then there are these other shots that are also inside that are also in a tenement where it's like why is this so lit like tommy and drita's apartment is lit like a nineteen fifty sitcom yeah but she i think lives in the same building or at least like close enough to uh, Babyface martin's mom so like why is her apartment so dark oh right because it has to be for this like heavy symbolism Yeah, it's it's an intense scene. It's super uncomfortable. And and I also watched it like three times because of uh, and every time it was super uncomfortable. It was it was not amazing. I mean, it was not like an amazing feeling. It was a totally amazing scene.
1: Both the actual like chase action killing sequence of Humphrey Bogart and the the sort of part where the cops show up afterward to clean it up are kind of the highlights of the movie to me.
0: Well, the scene with Francie to me was like, even though it made me hate Humphrey Bogart's character completely, finally, (laughs) I was always thinking, what is his redemption arc? And there isn't one. Like, he's just a bad guy. But the scene with Francie where he meets up with her, like in an alley, or she comes out and is like, who's asking for me? And he says, you know, let's go over here and talk. And they're in an alley. And the shot is basically them from, like, the shoulders up, and their faces are really, really close together. And it was super hot before it was not. (laughs) My thought kept being, where are their hands? (laughs) Everybody kind of looked like some stuff was going on below the waist.
1: (laughs) The same way San Francisco got a, like, oh, I see how you get gone with the wind out of this. Mm -hmm. That scene had an extremely, oh, Casablanca. Like, like, oh, okay. Yes, of course. Right,
0: right. Yeah. But it, it definitely looked like there was some hand stuff going on off screen. And then the shift of that to where she's like, pushes him away. And then suddenly our shot opens up and we can see them completely. And... She says, you know, look at me. And they have this whole thing that transpires where he realizes that she's become a prostitute and that she also has some sort of sexually transmitted infection. That was a really like you're there in the moment thing. Because if you had been one of them, all you were seeing is them, you know, the other person's face and then like a little bit of their shoulders with how close they were together. And then it opens up in her like, look at me line. And it was really, really good. And and also like really distressing again in a way that was effective and like a good use of film techniques and getting away from the theatrical acting and doing a thing you could only do on film.
1: I want to disagree with you in one very specific sense that I actually kind of like is the only thing about that scene that I do think is theatrical and kind of stagey but I also really 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 like is um that's the same alley where his body falls it's the same spot where he falls and dies. Yes. That is very like oh do you get it? Do you, do you see when it happens but it also really works when it happens?
0: I totally agree. And I don't think that was just because, you know, even though they have this really huge set, it does have its limitations and like how many alleys are you going to build?
1: Right. But the answer was, like, five, Um, so...
0: (laughs) Right, and they pick that one for his body to fall into.
1: And it's actually kind of one of the things I really like about the sequence with the cops after he has died is that isn't the alley you'd pick. It's a very small, crowded space, and they do, like, stuff 40, 50 gawking extras in there. And a lot of the staging around the whole thing... The cops coming in and figuring out who the body is and like this movie is one of the ways this movie is very, very good is the way it shows the cops being inept. It is a lack of care. Always. They just do not pay attention to detail. And don't really care who that hurts or if that means they're doing a bad job. Right. And so there's a whole sequence in that scene where the, like, beat cop loudly announces, like, that can't be Babyface Martin. I was just talking with that guy for, like, 20 minutes an hour ago. And the two (laughs) detectives at the scene are like, hey, never fucking say that out loud again as long as you live, idiot. (laughs)
0: Like what? Why are you such a dipshit? Yeah, there actually there's a moment in the movie where the cop says, oh, I should have learned to trade. And I totally thought the first time I heard that, I was like, I I, that's not what he said. I'm just really tired. And then the second time I was like, nope, that's what he that's totally what he says. The movie itself is like cops are bad, actually.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And also at the end, when the when the little brother when Tommy uh, turns himself in. He has to insist to get the cops' attention like four or five times and has to loudly announce, I'm the guy that stabbed that dude earlier <laughs> before the cops go, hey, you're right, you are, and grab him by the
0: arm. Yep. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know what else I have to say about the movie. Like I feel like we've pretty well gone over it.
1: I I apologize for how long I ended up talking to summarize the plot of this. I kind of... There's just so many...
0: No, I mean, you have to, because there's so many disparate threads, and, like, they do eventually all intersect, but, like we've talked about, for the first more than third of this movie, they don't intersect.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I do, you know, I, I think I'm kind of hard on this because I've seen so many theater productions that do this thing that I'm honestly a little tired of it, but, like, Yeah, how many movies have we watched where our commentary is like, why are the dead end kids even here? Why is, like, why are two thirds of the people in this movie even on screen? And like, no, I have to explain every character in this movie. I mean, I didn't need to go into the individuality of the dead end kids personalities because they basically don't have any.
0: Well, I I think Leo Gorsi as spit has a personality because I when I was watching it, I was like, that kid is going to grow up to be a rapist. (sighs) And so in my notes, every time that I was writing something about him, it was like future rapist does whatever. But, you know, Leo P. Gorsi is actually a really good actor, but he's kind of, like, the shittiest of the the gang. Like, everybody else seems pretty well, like, they just want to be kids who swim in the river and, like, maybe give some shit to the rich kid. But Spit seems to really want to, like, push this into some criminal territory. And then, of course, is the one who fucking flips and tells the cop. So, you know, he sucks.
1: Yeah. And like, I think a little bit the the movie and the, the play it's based on very intentionally don't kind of individualize the kids because their point is like, hey, it's actually this environment that's doing this to these kids. And in a way, it is kind of immaterial how Dippy is different than Angel is different than Tommy.
0: One of the kids looks so much like Tommy that it took me a really long time to realize that Which one was Tommy?
1: Oh, for sure. I checked out on knowing who was who 20 minutes into the film. I gotta remember Tommy. That's beyond that. I'm sure the movie will let me know if this Greek chorus ever individualizes
0: itself in any way. I mean, part of it, too, is that, like, Spit is definitely the most... Like, he looks the most different, I think, from everybody. There's the one with the long hair, who only looks different because he has long hair. And the shorter younger one who only looks different because he's shorter and younger but generally like they're pretty uh, you could really like swap them out for each other and spit only ends up being individualized because he's the rat yeah so so should we should we rate this movie
1: yeah um six
0: Wow okay i I I was gonna say nine
1: whoa no no Um, I, mm, I mean, I, I thought you were going to come back at me with a seven and I was going to be like, yeah, all right. But like, (laughs) it's, it's not that good. Very long parts of it are dedicated to like nothing.
0: I'm just, I'm really impressed with how they managed to link everything together. I'm also, I think I'm just so in love with Sylvia Sidney that I have had, uh, I, uh, you know, like I'm, I have been a little bit um, overly enthusiastic about it. I, I also love that Joel McRae, who plays Dave, is essentially like Spencer Tracy. I don't hate. <laughs> uh, and Humphrey Bogart, I thought was really excellent in it. Yeah, okay, well, I'll I'll come down from a nine. Uh, but I'm not coming in. I think it's. I think it's at least an eight.
1: I. I think we're just not gonna. I think.
0: I think we're not gonna agree. <laughs> yeah.
1: No. I'm not. I. I. I could go up to a seven, but I don't think I could go past that. And honestly, if we're gonna be apart on scores anyway, like I'm honestly, I'm sticking to a six. Like there's, a. I. Sylvia Sydney's great. There are some great performances in this. I think you are giving it a real bump for three plot lines coming together. I don't think particularly elegantly. I just think they do come together is a fact. And that is better than a lot of movies we've watched. But this is not a movie where I get to the third act and go like, oh, God, I didn't even realize they were setting that up the whole movie. It's a thing where I get to the third act and I'm like, OK, now the kids have a plan <laughs> Now, like now, I now I know why the kids are in the movie.
0: You, you know, I this may be because I'm coming off of watching the two Fantastic Beasts movies.
1: I that is a <laughs> real possibility because that those definitely seem like movies where um, have you seen them? No, God, no, I have.
0: So the first one, I guess, is kind of okay, and the second one is just a a mess. But I have a particular affection for them because. Well, one, I watched them on an airplane, so, like, anything that-
1: I don't think anyone has actually watched those movies not on an airplane.
0: Yeah, I mean, any, anything that kills time-
1: I have never heard a confirmed case of watching the Fantastic Beast movies not on a plane. <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean, like, anything that kills time and is a little bit brainless and doesn't require that much of you on an airplane, you're like, thank you for existing so that I didn't realize for three hours that I was on a fucking plane. <laughs> And they're all, I mean, they're all spectacle. The second one in particular, the plot is like, what the fuck is even happening? It, it like takes something that is central and then spins it out of control into multiple threads that don't ever meet up. So I think that by comparison, I'm maybe grading this on a really hard curve because it's the exact opposite. There's not a lot of, there's no spectacle, really.
1: No, outside of that opening shot. And even that's like not really. I mean, it's def- it's not a it's not a special effects showcase or anything.
0: No, no, cer- certainly not. Uh, yeah, I think I'll I think I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna come down to a seven. I'm gonna come down to a seven. All right, because you're right that it is like it's a lot of like slice of life stuff that only really tangentially ends up coming together. The plot line with Dave and Kay and Drina doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's like. At the beginning, some old woman tells Drina that, oh, well, she doesn't mean anything to him. And then the next time that we see her, where she finally actually talks, they're talking about running away together. But then he's just like, yeah, whatever. I, I realized that I actually love Drina. And I'm like, there's no establishment for that. No. At all. Humphrey Bogart showing up because he wants to talk to his mom and his like high school girlfriend or a childhood sweetheart i get the impression he probably didn't actually he says in the movie that he didn't go to high school it seems like a really flimsy reason for him to be back in this place if he's like a successful rich mobster so yeah yeah i mean i i get it i get it it's not perfect
1: yeah i i mean like i will go up to a 7 cuz i i mean i do think this movie does a lot of stuff well I just don't think it's jumping up into the like, I mean, here really the like seven to eight barrier is the should you watch this movie barrier. And I don't think my answer is like, I mean, it's certainly not a blanket. Yes. I think there's interesting stuff in here. I think if you want to like watch a pretty fun Humphrey Bogart performance, for sure. I think that like. I texted you about how the like the Dead End Kids like invented fifties method acting, and that's like kind of fun, uh, (laughs) even when their plot is like going nowhere and doing nothing. That just like that they're like, yeah, spit. You just gotta hear about it, okay? And you're like, all right, this is fun.
0: Yeah, the the Dead End Kids are definitely like Marlon Brando watched them to figure out how to play Stanley Kowalski.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. There are reasons to watch this. This movie. If, if you end up watching this movie, I think you'll have a fine time. I just don't think I would ask you to spend two hours of your, like, hour and a half of your life doing that. And that, to me, is the jump between seven and eight.
0: I, I think it totally depends on who we would be recommending this movie. Like, if you're a big cinematography person, and you're like, yeah, I'll sit through some pretty weak cinematography to see a handful of really great shots and scenes... It's a it's a good movie for that, because when when it is good and when it is really artistic and interesting, it's phenomenal. But for most of it, it is totally a straight ahead proscenium theater. Like you've got the camera in the middle of the house set up.
1: Here is, I think, the problem that I have with this movie is that, like, I can't figure out a why you should watch this movie that isn't some kind of or you're a film history nerd right like if you're a film history nerd for bogart then go for it if you're like a film history nerd for like setting up shots go for it if you're like an acting nerd there's some performances in here that are really interesting but like just as a movie to go like watch a movie i don't think it's that great i don't think it's like oh yeah you've got to see this thing
0: yeah and for me a seven is a like it's not going to kill you to watch it. It is good in a number of ways. Like it it maybe is even extraordinary for parts of it or for certain sections, but yeah, I a nine is I I got a little I got a little excited. <laughs>
1: I, uh, a, 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 maybe a little, I mean, I definitely think like it, this feels like a movie that came out in 1937 in a way that like it happened one night feels like, oh shit, they're not making movies this good. Like there are movies worse than this that are coming out today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Very quick aside. Sylvia Sidney was the old woman in Mars Attacks. That was her, her last role, Oh, which that just makes me love her even more. <laughs> She was also the caseworker in Beetlejuice, and uh, I think probably unsurprisingly, she died of esophageal cancer uh, in 1999, since in this movie, she does not sound like she had smoked a hundred cigarettes a day, and in both Beetlejuice and Mars Attacks, she definitely did. Yeah. Uh, But I loved both of those roles. She was great up until the very end. Yeah, so... Next week, we are watching Deanna Durbin again in 100 Men and a Girl.
1: Which is its own porn parody title.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to change it. <laughs> and it makes me super uncomfortable because she is definitely still a teen in this movie. So,
1: Hoofa doofa.
0: I have no idea what it's about, but I'm sure she'll sing because that's, that's what she does.
1: John Cardwell, a trombone player, is only one of a large group of unemployed musicians, is the the start of the plot. The poster's garbage, so maybe it'll be alright.
0: Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Until then...
1: (laughs) This was a movie based on a stage play, and you could tell several times, but boy, they put some money in it. (laughs)
0: $900,000, in fact. (laughs) Yeah. Bye.
1: Bye, everybody. your fight's at four o'clock, eh?
0: Yeah. Yes, sir. We'd be there right on a minute.
1: that's the wrong way. Get there oily, Oily than you said, see? Then they won't be ready for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah.